Hello and welcome back to Bombato, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast. We're on episode eight and I should say thank you very much for Sergi and Golo Lorin's help last week. It was fascinating to hear his thoughts on all things youth football in Spain. But this week we're back to normal, back to the usual format and I'm joined as always by the inimitable Alexander Jonsson. How are you? I'm good and I'm very happy that you didn't ditch me forever. <laughs> uh, give it time, give it time. Gotta keep you on your toes. Uh, so I think we should this week we should start off with the breaking news actually as we're recording this that Victor Valdez has been relieved of his job as Barcelona's juvenile A coach. It was something that we expected to happen after he was put to one side at the weekend from the, the team's game. But still it's pretty striking for a Barcelona legend who only came back to the club in the summer to be gone now in early October. Alex, thoughts? Uh, the first thing I kind of want to talk about is there, there's a lot of detail about this that we can get into, but part of it seems to be, well, not seems to be, is definitely that there's been a differences of opinion between Valdez and some of the people behind the scenes at Barca. So my question is, why should they be surprised by this? They know Victor Valdez very well. They know that he is a guy who has his opinions and he stands behind them very firmly. So should that not have been expected in the first place? Yeah, to be honest, I'm I'm surprised that they gave him the job to start with and that he took it because one of the main reasons, even though he didn't say it super clearly, he kind of hinted at it when he left Barcelona, uh, was simply that he didn't get along with the board. He didn't like how the club was, what direction the club was moving. I think it was a time where a lot of players felt like that, but Valdez was the, actually the only one to make to really uh, point it out or to show it by by leaving the club because I think I think he would have left the club sooner or later because he had the ambitions of going to England and try the Premier League and all of that but I'm definitely sure that if had it had it been another board another situation he would have left much later and, and stayed so just the the way that he left the club and it being the the same board even if it's a different precedent and uh, things have changed up there it's it's the same base uh, they didn't get along then, and I think the the only reason or that I see that they uh, hired him now is for political reasons and that it's a big name, blah blah blah. Um, but I'm I'm a little bit surprised from from Victor for taking the job because he knows yeah. he, we should know that nothing has really changed in those terms, and he doesn't agree with them, and they don't really agree with him. Um, and he is they already know that he's not the yes man. Uh, I will get to that a little bit later because I think that is an interesting thing to look at back in his history. Why he, I think he's not a yes man anymore, um, to put it like that. But I think so there is already from the start, if you want it to be in this certain way that that the Barcelona board wants all the youth teams to play, etc., and how they want the coaches to act, then it's very strange to to put a a personality like Victor Valdez in one of those positions. And from Victor's point of view, even though he really cares about the club and it's a great job opportunity, etc., knowing the board and from his past experience, I found it a bit strange that, that he took that job. And I was quite surprised when, when that came out, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, well, there's a lot to unpack here, so I'll try and remember it all. So yeah, to, to refer back to what you're talking about, which is a really good point, is that when he left Barca, he was supposed to go and join Monaco um and everyone knew that was going to happen and then he had an injury which kept him out and that that deal ultimately didn't happen but the sort of big surprise at the time or the big controversy if you like at the time is that he wasn't really given a send a send off by Barca uh he he said or people said that he didn't want that 
But there was also a feeling that, well, he didn't want it from the people who were there. Not necessarily that he wouldn't have liked to have had some kind of recognition, but his relationship with those people was frosty. And um, actually, to also point out, he actually called for his own press conference uh, where he said his decision. The club didn't call for it. The club didn't organize it. He he got to organize it himself and, and call the press for it himself to come to, to the Camp Nou for it. So that is also an interesting point that yep. haven't happened to any of the other players. Well, there's 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 other things to think about as well. One thing that I, I was actually surprised that he became a coach full stop because there was a period of time where he seemed to not want anything to do with football at all. You know, he seemed to quite enjoy living a normal life. This is the point I wanted to come back to as well too, because I think it's it's easy to to just see the Valdes that media portrays, the Valdes mm. that you see from the outside and, and all of that, and then get your opinions on what has happened now and that, oh, everything is, is Victor's fault, but also to two reasons that we were on that the club should have understood that this was not going to work. But I think it's interesting to to try to understand who Victor Valdes is because he is not really the type of personality that you expect him to be from what you see from the outside. Uh, and there was this uh, really good documentary that I think you can find on YouTube called Informe Robinson uh, with Victor Valdes from, I think it's around 2010. Um, and that one is, uh, he goes out in that one and for the first time explains how he hated being a goalkeeper. He's basically until Guardiola became the coach of Barcelona uh, from when he was a kid. And this is what I talked about before when I said that he is not a yes man anymore. Because I think that comes a little bit from being a yes man during his childhood, yeah. uh, in a way. Because he's he always got to hear that he was this amazing goalkeeping talent. Why he hated being a goalkeeper, but he didn't tell anyone because he thought that he had to be a goalkeeper because he was so good at it. And everyone kept on telling him, uh, starting with his dad, and he got into to play for Barca, and it was such a huge thing, uh, playing at La Masia, and everyone told him how good he was. Um, and in this documentary, he tells for the first time before that, I think no one really knew, not even his dad or his family or his friends, that he had hated it so much and had um, these really, really bad experiences as a kid. He would go the entire week, he says, just being frightened for the weekend because he knew he was going to play a match and it's going to be night a minute and it's going to be suffering, just standing between, uh, between the poles in the back. Um, so he had this in his entire growing up, just doing what everyone wanted him to do because that's what he was told he was supposed to do uh, and never really saying what he felt himself. And I think that has kind of formed him a little bit how he is more now. Um, and yep. also when he came up to the first team of Barcelona as a keeper, uh, for him explaining in this documentary, it was all of these years of suffering. And he was, while other kids played football because they loved it, he played as a goalkeeper because he thought he had to. And then the goal was, you know, have to reach it as a professional football player. So as soon as he did, he thought, okay, I've done it. I'm here. And then he was told he had to go and play with the B team again. And for him, that was like being thrown back. Uh, and no one, since no one knew what was going on inside in his head and everything, uh, he refused to play with the B team, said no. And outwards, this persona in media and everything started to be created about Victor Valles being this tough guy who said no and who was a troublemaker and everything like that. Uh, while if you actually get to know him in the sense of reading uh, his book, he, made, he wrote a book that is a very short book, but very 
very interesting, etc. Then you understand he's quite a sensitive guy and he's not at all this persona. And I think a little bit all of this during his growing up has made him into a person that now really speaks his mind and isn't this yes man, but more like shows what he thinks. And when, when he went to England, I think when he left Barca, that's where he really started to be his own person. And he left football quite early for a goalkeeper, but he looked very, very content when he did it. And it feels like a, a completely different person since after he left football. So that's what you said as well, is why it surprised a little bit that he went into coaching. Uh, but I think he doesn't dislike football per se. I just think he, he disliked the position he was in when it came to football. Yeah. And now we, we see another Valdez who, because of all of these it's even more strong opinioned um, and will will not be that yes man as as people call it that my bars are looking for. He's he's a very deep thinker. His book, I think it's called Method Obey. I can't remember the name, yeah. but it's, it's an odd book in the sense that it's not really a biography. It's more like a psychological plan for how to get through life and to get through football the way he has. Personally, I don't think it's actually a particularly good book and I recommended that it shouldn't be translated to English <laughs> because I think the way it's, the end product isn't great, but there's a lot of stuff in there that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it tells you something about him as a, as a person. I think, though, we should be careful and not trying to overcompensate because whilst um, he is misunderstood, he's also someone who can be prickly at times, and people who have had to deal with him know that. Um, and, I mean, you can ask anyone who's been lucky enough to, to interview him that you... you it, you're, it's not easy to get on his good side and I can imagine that's a similar thing from throughout life. I know someone who had to deal with him in a private capacity and there are some subjects that are just kind of like off the books like you just don't talk with him about them and whether that's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy where the people around him are making sure that that happens and not giving him a chance or whatever I don't know but there's, there's something there. Um, as to how he ended up back at Barca I do wonder if well the fact that Abby Dow's there his old teammate who he knows and probably trusts uh, the fact that Cloyver, again, someone who was at the club in a different capacity when he was there as a player was there, maybe gave him a false sense of security in some sense that he he probably regrets now. Um, and then I, I guess we should explain also like the, the details for those who don't understand what, of why this happened. So there are a lot of contributing factors. As we said, he's a guy who speaks his mind. He wasn't particularly thrilled that his team, the Juvenile team, were not getting to play at the Estadio Johan Cruyff as much as he had expected or hoped. Uh, he wasn't particularly happy, according to reports, that there were questions about his capacity as a coach to decide which formation he wanted to play, which players he wanted to pick. Uh, people behind the scenes thought that actually, no, you should just play 4-3-3 because that's what we do in this academy. And you should play these players because these are the players we use in the youth league. And then the, the final point is, the well, we'll hear... Valdez will have a chance to give his own version of this at some point if he chooses to. It wouldn't be a surprise if he didn't. But there's also supposedly a very heated discussion with Patrick Cloyver as well uh, before the weekend, which was not a particularly... Uh, I don't think it was on a particularly calm level between the two of them, and that all seems to have contributed to it. I mean, it'll be fascinating for me to see what happens next, whether he continues in football or whether he takes time out again. I think it's interesting the point that you made, that he, he doesn't necessarily dislike football, but maybe he's not suited for this kind of you know giant global mega club football maybe he'd be much happier doing what he was doing before somewhere else smaller where he can just be his own man and be his own coach and focus on his love of the game i don't know 
Yeah, I think like before he got to Barca as well, he was coaching a bit in Madrid, somewhere around yep. Madrid, I think in a smaller club. Exactly. Uh, it just feels like that suits him better in, in some way. And also to come back and, and summarize this entire situation, I think it's it's a very complex situation. It's a very complex person. If we take Victor Valdez, there is, as you said, there is both the good sides to him and the bad sides to him. And I think to summarize it all, you can't really blame all of this on Barca. You can't really blame all of this on Victor. It's mm. just a lot of complex, it's a complex situation with a complex person, I would say. Um, and it's uh, very, very difficult, especially when you're not on the inside and know exactly what has happened exactly. and how people have acted uh, to say whose fault it is and if it was right or if it was wrong. Um, and I'm sure that, uh, and also, uh, what I think is should be interesting to point out as well that one of the the things as well that's been complained about is how he wanted to to do things different with his mm. team than they do with all of the other teams, uh, and you could say that that is he he should just get in line and do as everyone is doing. Then again, you can look at a, a coach called Josep Guardiola who came to Barca's B team and changed everything and mm. did uh, go against all the rules that was there basically. Uh, and started out really bad with bad results and then things changed around and see where he is now. So it's it's very difficult to say nothing is black or white. No. You can't say it's like this or it's like this. It's very complex, all of it, I would say. And it also, it also has to do with the people behind the scenes and how open-minded they are, how much faith they have in you. In Guardiola's case, he had complete faith from the people there. Um, and then, I mean... You know, people will say, well, there's no smoke without fire with Valdez. Well, there's no smoke without fire with the people that are working at Barca either. The fact that Carlos Puyol decided not to come back quite recently uh, says something. The fact that Xavi Hernandez quite recently said in an interview that he would like to come back, but the project he thinks is most interesting is Victor Font's project mm -hmm. says something. There's an election cycle coming up in Barca, and I have a funny feeling there's going to be a lot of changes, and it's quite bad PR for the current people in charge. Uh, they won't be that happy. So what they will rely on as always with Barcelona, is that the sporting side of things takes over and that produces the success necessary to try and uh, maintain their reign, which has been going on for, well, a long time now. I'm trying to think of 2011, I guess, 2010. 2010. Yeah, exactly. So oh, we're old. Weekly reminder. <laughs> um, but the sporting side of Barca, well, they got a good result of the weekend. One thing I'm curious about, though, was that they got a really good result with the guy that they made their big summer sign-in sitting on the bench. Antoine Griezmann, who did not participate at all, uh, who saw Usman Dembele play very well before a questionable red card, which has already been dissected a hundred times, and who against Inter uh, saw the team do much better without him on the pitch. I'm beginning to wonder if there's a risk now that, and it's early days, but there's a risk, and we've seen this before, that, that Griezmann ends up like another Philippe Coutinho, like a really talented player who on paper seems like they'll be a good fit for Barca, but for a number of reasons, because it's such a complicated club to work at, as we've already outlined in the case of Valdez, it just doesn't click. Um, when do they start to worry about this stuff? The fact that they're doing better without him on the pitch in some games now must be an alarm sign, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think also one of the things that I pointed out in a previous episode with Barcelona is that we've been honest that they still are trying to figure out what way they are playing football these days what is their identity and stuff like that and i think when looking at their signings they often more 
more often than not these days sign players because of their names or because how they mm. how many shirts they can sell etc instead of looking how does this player actually work in the way we want to play so if you look at at teams that are very successful when it comes to transfer windows and and then really get that most out of those players it's the clubs that have really looked into instead of looking into what player is the big name what player do do we want they they look into what player suits best in the type of of how do we play and what players do we need for that and what player suits best in that uh, in that type of play and that's where i'm feel with barcelona and their signings the last couple of years is that i haven't really thought too much about that uh, you can say, like you said with Griezmann, that on paper he looks like he would suit Barcelona perfectly. But then again, how do Barcelona play? In, in what way does he suit perfectly? Um, and that's where I'm a little bit, uh, when it comes to why, to start with, it's complex to play for Barcelona. And even when they knew exactly how they were playing, it was difficult for new signings. You need some players needed a year to to really fit in and find their spot. So I think it's too early to say that okay it's not working but at the same time these days it feels like there is no real idea in how they want that player to play and how that is supposed to work uh, and that makes it e- even for the best players you you're in a difficult position to to find your spot if no the club doesn't even know your spot it's very odd because barca used to be the epitome of a team with a really defined idea i mean it's, it's exactly what sergi said when we talked to him last week part of the reason why atletico madrid have had so much success is that they know every time they sign a player, those players know exactly what they're going to get and they know exactly what they need to continue playing the way they play. And Barca have kind of lost their way. It's, it's quite sad to see, actually. But I have a feeling like sooner rather than later, they'll be back. They always are. Well, they got a good result of the weekend. And the, I wanted to mention, I said to you before we were on air, that if you look at the top of the La Liga table right now, we've got Real Madrid, we've got Barcelona, and we've got Atleti in the, the top three positions. So at the start of the season, we said time and time again that maybe we should be a little bit more patient before we we jump up and say, oh, this is incredible. La Liga has been revolutionized. The exact same thing we said last season. Uh, and so it is. Although I think you have a caveat to that, right? Which is regarding, I guess, the probably the most available spot in the top places, which is fourth. Yeah. No, so the, I think you're, you're on you're right with that. It's probably going to end up being Barca, Real Madrid, Atletico at the top three. With that said, I think if there is one season where there's a possibility we get another team among the top three, yes, somewhere among there, uh, it could be this season because there's two things that needs to happen for that to happen. First, the two, the three top three, either one or two of them or all of them needs to have a really bad season. And looking at Barcelona and Real Madrid this season, it feels like Barcelona has Lionel Messi, so they will always be up there. Uh, if they're going to win the league or if they're going to be second or, or whatever, we'll see. But as soon as long as they have Messi, it doesn't really matter. They will be up there, but they will, as we've seen now, when he's not playing uh, as previous to, to him coming back, they're going to lose points here and there. Uh, Real Madrid this season, they're the only team that yet to lose a single match in La Liga, which I find interesting since mm-hmm. they have not, they're probably the one of the top three that has performed the worst in yeah. sense uh and i feel like if they're going to continue the way they are they're going to t- drop points and drop more points than they normally do uh but so what we need for anyone else to come up and and challenge the top three is for the the teams up in the top three to have bad seasons and i think that this is a season where we could see them struggle a lot more than we've seen in previous seasons but then at the same time we need any of the other teams to have an outstanding season mm-hmm. and i only really see one team 
that has the possibility of having that at this point, uh, and that's Real Sociedad. But with that said, there is a lot of doubts around that as well. So far, for me, there is no team, not even any of the top three, that over all the matches has played better than Real Sociedad. For me, they've been the, the best team so far looking at all the matches. Uh, but Martin Adegaard, as we've talked about a lot, has been a key for that. And would you manage to get him out of the matches or would he get a longer injury or anything like that? I think Real Sociedad is going to struggle because mm. they don't really have a, a someone who can take the role that he has been taking. Uh, so there's a lot of... And it's still, I think, the youngest or one of the youngest teams in La Liga. So that's going to show when it comes the longer the league comes when it comes to experience and everything like that. So it is probably going to end up being these top three. Uh, but if there is one season where someone could challenge them, it's this season. What I'm worried about is that no one is really up for the task. It's a real shame and it's classic Valencia. I wrote this a while back. I mean, they were incredibly well positioned, having won the cup, having finished fourth for a second time, have a really clear idea completely behind their coach. And they made they started the summer pretty interestingly. They made a, a good signing, I think, Maxi Gomez. Had they planned this better or had they taken advantage of the position better, then they would have been by far the the team in the best situation to try and push on and, and break that. Can you say triopoly? I don't know. It's the, <laughs> the extension of a duopoly at the top. But, you know, they're Valencia, so they imploded. Real Madrid, to go back to your point about them, I agree. And I think, like... Uh, some people maybe don't agree with me necessarily and they might think it's crazy considering as you said they've yet to lose a game but i think the the lack of control that they have in their performances the the fact that at the weekend they were miles ahead i think they were three up and they still managed to uh, take their foot off the gas and concede twice uh, as an alarm bell i think that they don't know how to balance this defensive more disciplined version with the attacking version and the results reflect that if you see the game they played against Sevilla, where Sevilla had so many chances but couldn't take any of them, it's a deceptive result in Madrid get a 1-0 when they, they were defensively a bit shaky in that one. Uh, and then when they're playing against the, the smaller teams, when they attack, they leave so much space. So good quality attacking teams will be able to punish them. And I think over the course of a league season, that doesn't lie. That always ends up revealing itself. And that's what their problem has been. They've never really found that consistency. Um, but Real Sociedad, I don't know, it's a difficult one for me because I think they, they, they've they been playing differently this season to the way they played last season. I think they have a much clearer idea with Odegaard as their sort of playmaker, if you like. And then watching this game at the weekend, I mean, it's conditioned by the red card, I agree. But I thought it was telling that this is the, uh, for me, I think it was the toughest game that Odegaard has had, maybe with the exception of the derby. But Getafe seemed to have a pretty good idea of how to try and contain him. Uh, he didn't have the same freedom to move around the pitch and pick up the ball in space that he had before. So it will be really telling for me, and a huge detail will be how they react now. Uh, can they adjust? Can he? Can they do something to continue to get the best out of him? What do you think? What do you think of his game against Getafe and their chances in general? No, that's that's what I'm worried about as well with the Real Sociedad. Like if teams start to, especially now when Odegaard been so good in, in the first matches and everyone is talking about him, uh, that can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing because now all other teams know about how his his importance for Real Sociedad. So if if they manage to put him out of the matches uh, and and focus on that, it might be a lot easier to to beat Real Sociedad, and that's going to uh, to make their game a lot more difficult. So that is what's going to be really interesting in the matches coming up now to see how opponents deal uh, with him and, and how they also said I deal with that. 
because as, as I said before, the, the inexperience of this team, even though we haven't really seen any any of that so far this season, we saw a lot of it last season, uh, how that uh, affected them and affected like at this point, Adegoran and Sabal are the two leaders of the team. Mm-hmm. And what we saw last season was that when Oyer Sabal had to be the leader on himself, it didn't really work. So he needs Adegoran because they are, are still very, very young players. And it's a lot of pressure to put on players in, in their early 20s um, yeah. to lead an entire team. And there is a lot of excitement around Real Sociedad now because they've been so good and they've been, in my opinion, the best playing team in La Liga so Most far. Most attractive football, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that is is high in raising the, the expectations. Uh, but don't think anyone is thinking of them to actually challenge in, in the top top but to get a champions league might be what people are hoping for but it's so early days yeah. it's so difficult to say how far this is going to be it's like we said before you have to be kind of cautious at the start um it looks really good but there is still those worrying things we saw last season where Imanol didn't really know what he was doing with his team at some point um, and we might get to that as well when he's challenged a little bit more, uh, especially with this other guard situation. How how are you playing yourself out yeah. of that? And how are these players going to act when the longer the season goes? Now they have Nacho Monral, which I think is a key for them when it comes mm-hmm. to the experience and especially the defense, which has been so much stronger this season than last season. So there's a, they're definitely going to be one that are going to be challenging for things. Uh, is how far they're gonna go? Uh, I think it's just too early to say. Uh, I one thing to keep an eye on as well. I, I have a suspicion that Porto might become a problem for them. I've had. I think he's the problem with him is he has one asset that's outstanding. He's incredibly quick, um, but he reminds me a little bit of like Theo Walcott in the sense that once people figure that out, then you have to see what else he has, what other tricks and twists does he have. He's really his end product. This season so far and last season was bad. There was a time when he did do good numbers in front of goal, but again, I think it was more that people were caught by surprise. They've figured out how to defend against him now. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, we'll see. But I, I do wonder if in the end, I understand what he gives them tactically, but I wonder if it might not be worth experimenting with some other kind of setup in some games to see if you can uh, try and give someone, get, try and give your opponent something different to deal with because they know what they're getting with Porto, even though he could be hugely dangerous. He's not a player who really varies his game so much. All right, to continue on the subject of the Getafe game, uh, Real Sociedad Getafe, it was a really fascinating game, I thought, because it was completely, the first and second half were really different. I was really impressed with how Bordalas reshuffled uh, in the second half when he moved Marco Correa to left back, which is a position he's not really played for a while since he left Barca. And I've been buying in a strong for a while, but I'm really surprised that Barca were so happy to let him go and not to even give him a chance. And often the argument that's thrown back at me as well, at Abar he wasn't playing as a left-back. and Yeah, that's true. But at Betis, Junior was playing as a wing-back. He rarely, if ever, played as a, an out-and-out left-back. So Kukure also is a, a left-back by trade. That's the position that he was playing before he went out. What do you think? Do you think they should have given him a chance or do you think it's the right call that he's never going to be Barca material and he's, he's better to go off elsewhere? Well, from a Barca perspective, uh, I think they should have given him a chance. I think he's been brilliant at A-bar. He's been brilliant at Huatafe as well. Uh, it's, he, for me, he was one of the standout players from last season. One of those that are like, oh shit, that is caught your eye and, and you're uh, surprised and, and really impressed by uh, so for me, definitely, if I, I was a Barca fan and if I, I would definitely want to see him in the team from the 
point of view from Cucurea, I think actually it's good for him that he's mm. not back at Barcelona. He gets to play regularly. He gets to play right now under two brilliant coaches, to be honest, like Mendilibar at Eibar and Borrelas at Huetafe, for me, are two of the, the best minds in Spanish football at the yeah. moment. Uh, so I think he's learning a lot, and that is brilliant for him, uh, for his development. And he's probably getting to play more than he would at Barcelona. He's not under the same pressure as he would be under Barcelona with the same huge media pressure and uh, and world pressure, if you want to say, uh, as he would be there. So he gets to get a more calm development. So for, for him personally, I think it's it's brilliant, the, the setup right now. Uh, for Barcelona, it's... They're, the thing with Barcelona when they send players on loan, uh, which happens with many big clubs, which I don't like, is that it feels like they send the players away on loan and then they forget about them. Yep. They don't understand that. The thing is, when you send a player on loan, is for the player to develop and you should probably be following that player as closely as possible. And it just feels like they don't. It feels like they send them on loan and then they forget about them. Uh, so, which if you want to make it that Barca... Going alone, looking historically, hasn't been the best best way to do it. Yeah, it's a real pity, actually. And there's there's very few exceptions. We talked about this in pods before about how really the only one that I can think of is Rafinha, which we've gone into in detail. And that mm-hmm. was a very specific situation because his next coach ended up being his previous coach where he was on loan. But staying in the Basque country, because this is a topic that we haven't actually touched on before, I wanted to talk about the, the setup there. Uh, with away fans with regards to away fans and making it more affordable for them to go to games because away support in Spain has been a subject that's been of particular uh, note in the last week or so um, can you explain what the deal was I mean which clubs are involved uh, which regions is it just the Basque region or does it involve Navarra as well no so what uh, what I know is least is that Salta de Vigo so it's Galicia and Basque country so Salta mm-hmm. Real Sociedad and then Salta and Atletico uh, Atletico, Atletic, uh, have made deals uh, which make that away tickets for their the matches are 25 euros. So when Atletic traveled to, to Vigo this weekend, it was just 25 euros, which if you look at football in Sweden, that would be very cheap. But in Spain, that is very cheap. Uh, when, when it comes to football, uh, the prices are insane. Uh, so it's 25 euros for away fans, for the athletic fans to go to the Celta match. And when Celta play away at San Mamés, it's going to be 25 euros mm-hmm. for the Celta fans. And the same deal has been made between Celta and Real Sociedad as well. And I can say there was a lot of athletic fans here this weekend, which was brilliant to see. There was, like, just walking to the stadium, I, I saw more red and white shirts than I saw Celta shirts. But then, obviously, around the stadium was more Celta shirts. But there was uh, a, a bit, I don't know how many they were. I think there's 600 tickets or something like that, they said, uh, that they they have uh, from each club to give to the, the away fans. Uh, but uh, that that's just brilliant because as we as you pointed out, that way fan culture in Spain doesn't really exist as it does in many other countries. And I think there is many different reasons to that, and one of them being La Liga being so complicated with schedules and so you know last minute and then it becomes very expensive and then tickets are already very expensive yep. um, for home and away fans. So that's definitely uh, definitely helps to to do deals like this, and I'm really happy to see it. And then another, I think we need to point out just from this weekend was the Granada fans mm-hmm. who went to Bernabeu. I think I don't know how many it was looked like a few thousands. Actually. You could hear them, and that's not easy at the Bernabeu. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend actually who lives down in Granada, uh, a friend from from Sweden who's lived there for a few years now, and he traveled. I just saw on his Insta story they traveled in buses from Granada. 
mm-hmm. all the way to to Madrid, and it just looked amazing. So many fans. Yeah, and I think it makes a massive difference as well. I mean, one thing that always stands in my head. So everyone probably knows this. There's a bunch of reasons, as you said. One of them is that ticket prices are so expensive. The other one is that it becomes so expensive to travel because you can't book until like a week before, as every journalist that's ever worked in Spanish football knows. Um, and that doesn't help the culture. But it makes a huge difference. I remember when Atletico won the title in 2014. At the end, like Simeone really hammering home. I think the exact phrase, because it always sticks with me, he was like, okay, do what we do in Argentina. Uh, get yourself like in your camper van or your car take your family get your bocadillo like just drive up go to the game have your sandwich or whatever try and save money but we need you and then when mm-hmm. they played away there were a lot of traveling athletic fans and i was there i don't know if you were i think you might have been yeah, when, was. when they won at the camp now uh after all the applause which everyone remembers from the camp now when the dust had settled there were tons of athletic fans in that stadium Simeone like climbed over the little barricade to go and salute them and say hi to them so it can really make a massive difference in terms of getting your team over the line uh with Granada it's, it's made a difference I mean the fact that they stayed they fought until the end in that game when the you know lesser teams wouldn't have and actually I suspect they're going to be okay I have a funny feeling they, they might be all right looking at the how things are working out with the teams at the bottom of the table so I think their fans are going to have plenty more things to be happy about and get excited about. But yeah, I wish there were just more of these kind of things done, maybe also at league level, to try and help fans uh, travel and see their teams because it has a huge impact on the product as well. Yeah, the problem with the league feels like they care in many times more about the fans abroad and TV and everything like that than they do about the fans here. And that's what the the feeling you get from the fans here is that they feel like they, the league doesn't really care about them or if that they can go to the matches or not, especially with the prices that you see at, at most stadiums are is insane. Sadly. All right. Well, actually, on the subject of the teams that you maybe would expect to be fighting out down the bottom, Leganes, we've not really talked about them in detail so far, but it strikes me that they are they have a problem. They're in a really bad situation. Uh, they're way down at the bottom. Things have not clicked for them at all. Uh, at the weekend, they were trailing by two goals uh, to Levante and then they get one back through Brathwaite which is a ridiculous goal by the way ultimately he couldn't score the penalty but what do you think I mean we, we, we said at the start of the season that they might have an issue that they played in a very specific way but now their opponents have had a chance to look at them for a season have had a chance to figure out what they do and that maybe they would need to evolve so far I don't think they've been able to do that Mauricio Pellegrino has to come up with an answer soon because otherwise they could have a problem on their hands yeah, and I was actually just thinking about this. And the thing is that uh, I had forgot them, but now when I started thinking about what was it, they were struggling at the start of last season as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, their first win was against Barcelona at home, and that was quite a long way into the to the season. They're still the only team to not have a win this season, yep. so it's similar in that way. Uh, and then the the transfer window in January completely changed their their season, and they've actually got to keep several of those players that came in and, and yep. made such a huge difference uh but it feels like maybe that sometimes when you when you get something like that going uh it has an experiment date like it just goes it's when you've done the signings in the in the january and everything just clicks you're like in this momentum this adrenaline it feels like that has just faded out now mm-hmm. because now now we're like in the next season and they've been there for a while um and just overall i think going into the season i saw leganes as one of the teams that would struggle one yeah. of the teams that probably will be be relegated uh and it comes down to, to just not having the same kind of squad depth 
I think, as, as most other teams. Yeah. And as you say as well, everyone knows how they play now. Uh, the surprising moment is kind of gone. Yeah. Uh, but then again, it took them a while last season and maybe they'll do the, the right signings in January. I don't know. But it is, doesn't feel like uh, like Leganes is going to cut it. Well, I mean, their coach, Mauricio Pellegrino, was really loved there. Um, and they've come out and said, no, nothing's going to happen. We're sticking by him. So it seems like he's going to at least get a chance uh, to try and fix it, which, you know, like you said, past evidence from last season suggests that he can push them on. But I hope so. I hope also for Martin Brethwaite's uh, sake, because it's incredible. He's only scored two goals. He's still their top scorer this season. <laughs> and that suggests there's a problem in the attack. And, and at the weekend, he started from the bench. Um, so the, their boss is going to have to come up with something soon. Speaking of coaches that need to come up with something soon, I know that you want to talk about Celta. I looked at the signings they made in the summer and I thought, okay, this Celta side is going to push on. And then I looked at the table this weekend and it doesn't look that hot. Are they going to end up sucked into a relegation battle again or are they going to click and push on? No, like the thing is, I think it's a very, very different situation from last season. I think that the problems they had last season is problems that we'll see get relegated if you don't have any Aguaspas be playing out of this world. Uh, the problems they have this season, I think, are more like problems that in the end is going to see them not having any chance of reaching Europe or anything like that. I don't think it's problems that are going to drag them down to relegation battle. Uh, at this point, I think it has more to do with just trying to find the style that actually works for these players. So I've been at the last few few matches, home matches now, I've been just really trying to figure out what is the problem. Uh, because as you said, they did really, really interesting signings this summer. And I think signings that made fans here super excited. Mm-hmm. Like if you walk around Balaidos, you see, you will see Danny Suarez shirts, you will see Rafinha shirts, uh, Santimina shirts everywhere. The, the fans are, are so excited to have these players back. But I think the problem, which I've talked about a little bit before, is the similarity between these players. Uh, so I think what's happened is that they have too many players that are too alike. And because it's so good players, you want to play all of them. So you play all of them. Uh, but you end up having them playing the same way and no one to really break the pattern. Mm. Uh, so what I've seen in these last matches is a Celta that tried to pass themselves all the way into goal. They never shoot. They never take a shot. Like yesterday, I, I really looked at this because you had so many chances where you could have just taken the shot, but they never took the shot. They went for the pass. And they end up passing, passing, passing. And they get very, very far, but you have to pass a lot to get all the way into the goal. And especially against a team like Athletic that are quite well at, at uh, defending, that even the goal they scored yep. was a header, but I would call it a pass header, a head pass. Because Asbas was basically as close as it can be to the goal. And just, and it was from another head pass. It's, so that's the the problem, I think, that they're trying to pass all their way. And what I would like to see happen, and what's interesting is that if you look at the very first matches of the season, it was before Rafinha got into the team and when Santimina was still injured. Everyone was talking about how good Denis Suarez was and how great Celta were playing. And the difference there that I want to see try out again is that they were playing Gabriel Fernandez, mm-hmm. who is this Uruguayan who's very similar to Maxi Gomez, and he breaks the pattern. So if yeah. you 
for instance, would take out Santimina just for, for one match in the starting lineup and put in Gabriel Fernandez, I would really like to see how that pan out. Because they're playing, these players are amazing and they can do amazing things. And you see that every now and then the brilliance. And what is also a key for Celta, which is a huge difference from last season, is that the fence is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, or really good in Celta terms. So last season and the seasons before, the defense had been in really big trouble. Uh, but the, the signing of Aidu and having Aidu instead of Cabral has made such a huge difference. And you don't really feel the same nervous as soon as someone starts attacking against Celta. It's actually more about the attack being the problem now. Uh, where the quality is there and you see the every other down, you see the brilliant moment and these players connecting is incredible. But you just don't have the the final scoring uh, opportunities they, they just get stuck in the passing a little bit like we've seen Barcelona in previous years happen as well so I want to just at least get a match where Gabriel Fernandez starts instead of for instance Santimina and just breaks the pattern and see if that can can help because it's easy for an opponent if the entire opponent team plays the same way there's also a dangerous with go a danger with going too far in the direction of ending up making populist signings. So, mm-hmm. as whilst it's a nice idea bringing all these players home, I guess what you're almost getting at as well is if you look at the the way they play and the spaces they occupy on the pitch, could you have Denis Suarez, Rafinha, Santimina, and to an extent even Iago Aspas in the same team, or do you have too many people occupying the same areas and trying to do the same things? Um, like on paper, it looks amazing. Yeah. Like having all of these great players together. But does it really work or is it more players that it's good to have one or two of them and then other type of players? Because you need to understand that you can't just have the same similarity type of player everywhere. You need to have yeah. some players that breaks the pattern. Otherwise, it's... Speaking of breaking the pattern, I don't know if you were unlucky enough or anyone else was unlucky enough to see Bayo the lead against Atletico Madrid <laughs> at the weekend. It pretty much played out exactly the way that you would imagine that by the lead against Atletico Madrid might play out. It was not necessarily the most attractive game of football. Uh, something I wanted to touch upon from this game that I've been thinking about for some, way, some time now actually is, when is Diego Simeone going to drop Diego Costa? Happy birthday, Diego Costa. Yeah, happy birthday, Diego. Well, here's the thing, Diego, seeing as we're addressing you directly because I know that you listen because your English is excellent, if we remember from Chelsea. I, I love him. I think he's a phenomenal player. And I think at his best, there was really no one quite like him. Uh, in particular, you know, up until when when his final year at Athletic before he left and then his, his first spell at Chelsea, his first year or two there. Um, but something has happened. And I'm not really sure what it is. Maybe it's just the, the years on his legs that have, I don't know, lack of inspiration or something. But now when he gets the ball, I mean, it almost seems to bounce off him at times. It used to be like that he could take the ball from any height, any distance, and he would get Atleti up the pitch and he would do something with it. Now he just looks so clumsy. It's a real shame. And finishing-wise as well, he looks like he's a problem. And then I look like Abaro Morata, who, all right, he's he's not scoring a huge number of goals either, but he's he's played slightly less and he has the, the same number of goals as Costa. And I think he does all the things tactically that Costa does and more. So I'm beginning to wonder if Diego Simeone might need to swallow his pride. He's a hugely loyal coach to the people above all the people who won won the league for him. I think he's, he has a huge amount of loyalty and respect for them. But if you look at it, if you take Costa out of the team, you stick Morata up front, you put Joe Felix behind him, and then that gives you the opportunity to play maybe Lamar, maybe Vitolo when he's fit. To me, that's a much more interesting and threatening team and one that's more likely to solve the problems that Atleti are having right now, creating chances, than persisting with this sort of fake trident that people have been hyping up, which isn't really a trident at all. 
which is Costa and Morata, who are trying to occupy the same spaces. Costa, who's not doing much when he does anyway. And then shunting Joe Felix out wide and taking him too far away from goal. So I, I think how that plays out will really determine how far Athletic can go this season. And this, I have a question for you as well. Mm. Yes. On Diego Costa, do you think it affects him in any way, the way that Atletico has changed over the summer when it comes to all the signings, many of the old guard leaving the club, like on a both on the sense of how the team plays and, mm. and his position, but also in the sense of having different teammates and many of the, the players he's been used to have around him not being mm. there anymore? Well, it's an interesting point. Actually, I hadn't really thought about this in detail, but if you think about the way that Costa used to get success at Atleti and the way like an overwhelming amount of his goals and the danger he created, it was a, a really consistent move. Koke got the ball uh, from a sort of start and wide position and then he would play this sort of long diagonal pass over the top that Costa would get in space and then he would go up the pitch and score. They don't play that ball anymore, partially because teams have had a longer time to figure them out. Uh, also partially because Koke's form, which we'll get to later, has really not been particularly good i think i'm surprised that he's been getting away with some really ropey performances for quite some time and then yeah there is a question if you look at the collection of players that are around them maybe they want the ball to feet more often maybe they don't want to play it in the air um, and morata i think he's good in both regards he can play sharp link up play as well and he can take it in the air so maybe he's a bit more suited to the slightly more evolved atleti uh than before but i also think there's confidence that Diego Costa is one of these guys that you think that he's just a, an endless well of self-belief and confidence, but I'm not sure that he is. I actually think he's a, he's a huge confidence player. Um, and you've seen other periods in his career when things haven't been going well for him that he hasn't scored a lot of goals either. Um, and I don't know how he recovers that. I'm not sure that continuing to, to persist with him in the start in 11 and continuing to, by the looks of things, draw out mediocre performances from him is going to help him. I think if you bench him and you give him some motivation and make him try and work his way back into the team, that might be the way to get the best out of them. But what do I know? Yeah, I think I think the it's quite a, a good approach is when a player is not really performing that you know has a lot more to to go with uh, to put them on a bench one match. We saw that with Real Sociedad with William Jose against yep. Atletico Madrid. Uh, mm. Imanol benched him. Next match, he scores two goals, and we've seen I've seen that so many times with the, with smart coaches when they do that and you can be like how can he bench him it's it's the star player but the star player maybe haven't performed and that gives such a motivation boost because it, it reminds them that they are not in the starting lineup no matter what that there is actually other players who, who could take their spot speaking of uh motivation boosts and getting it right and this is a seamless segue what was Valencia president Anil Murthy thinking when he tried to silence the Mestalla crowd? I'm assuming well aware that people have mobile phones these days, so they will film it and you'll get caught doing it. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to find an answer for either he's incredibly out of touch or he just didn't mean it. He genuinely just didn't think and he was trying to be slightly more humorous about it perhaps. But the, considering the week or the, the few months that Valencia have had, so there's the whole Marcelino fiasco. There's the signings not being made that, that fans and the coach wanted. Then there's, there's some questionable stuff as well about Santi Cañizares is a charity endeavors that Valencia were supposed to support and they didn't. It has not been a very good summer nor a very good few months for the people who own and who are in charge of Valencia. So good PR is what they need right now, especially in a day where there's been more protests again at the Mestalla. Why? Why does he do this? What What is he going to achieve and where does this go? 
I think the question why is one you can use for a lot of things that happens at Valencia lately and at that club. It's just, I got no words for it anymore, to be honest. It's like nothing surprises me anymore when it comes to that club. It's like we said before, they just keep on shooting themselves in the foot in more ways than than you can even imagine. And it comes from just everything around that club. And I, I understand that the fans must be so frustrated at this point because mm. you have... As, as as you were touching on before, this could be a season where Valencia could have actually really, really challenged at the top uh, with the with the stability that they could have created with the team they have, with the players they have, with the experience as a club Valencia have. But they just keep on destroying for themselves over and over and over and over again. And it's on every single level. And it's just... At this point, there's like no words for it anymore. It's just amazing how, if it's Lim, if it's Murphy, whoever it is, it's like always someone that finds it. They're consistently on brand, you could say. All right, we're almost an hour in, so we'll wrap up. But I wanted to touch briefly on the Spain squad because we're heading into an international break. First of all, Santi Cazorla is back in there. I think everyone's happy about that. That's tremendous news. If anyone deserves it, it's him. He's a great guy and someone who's had to work through some horrible things and has come out the other side of it. So he deserves it. Um, what do you think? For me, I was thinking about this the other day and I was thinking, not only do I think he's probably the best Spanish midfielder in Spain this season, but I've seen a fair bit of the people abroad, like Fabian, for example, at, at Napoli. I think he might just be the best Spanish midfielder full stop this season. There's no doubt that he deserves this, right? No, not at all. It's so amazing what he's been doing and like watching him play is like such a joy. There's few players that are as enjoyable to watch as him, and he's been such a key for for Villarreal as well. And I think also just to to touch on it to, to explain what he's actually done because I think most people know it by this by this time. But if if someone doesn't, it's it's worth just pointing out. So he got an injury about more than two years yep. ago. Uh, when he was playing for Arsenal, that a minor injury that wasn't really going to stop him for very long, it looked like. Um, and then something happened and it got infected. And it, there was, I think there was a lot of things done wrongly uh, around his injury. Uh, and it ended up getting really, really bad to a point where he ended up having to do, I think, 11 surgeries or some operations or something like that yeah. and he was told by doctors in in england that he would be lucky if he could kick about the ball a little bit in the garden with his kids um and he would like football was over for him um in the end he decided to go back to spain he went to uh, vitoria where he find a doctor who uh found, like in england he couldn't find what the problem was uh, what the virus was that had infected uh, his leg or his foot um, so in so he went to Spain and he found a doctor who, who finally figured out what was the problem uh, and they solved it but it was a very very long way to go back and uh, he was like going all over the place being away from his family a lot uh, ended up starting training with uh, one of Alaves youth teams um, just rehabbing and it took two years in total for him to get back playing football. And uh, when he got to Villarreal, he was just there to, to play with them during preseason, basically. Yep. No contract, nothing. Uh, just to see if he could play football at all. And uh, and then uh, he impressed during preseason and they gave him a contract. And he was their best player without a doubt last season. And it was just incredible to see him back on a football pitch at all 
after those two years without playing and no one really knowing what's going on. And then he's not just back, he's the best player in the in the team. And then he just continues. And now he's, as you say, probably the best midfielder, Spanish midfielder at the moment, which is just incredible. It feels like we've gotten an encore or like extra time with Santa Cathora. Yeah. Like we, we didn't we thought it was done. He obviously didn't. He was determined enough. I mean, I think there was even talk at one point that he that some people gave him advice you might need to have an amputation because of this virus. Yeah. That's how bad it was. And he's just been outstanding. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm not a, a physician. I don't know what the what the science is on this, but I wonder also if those couple of years out from regular football might also mean that he has a little bit extra gas left in the tank because that's a lot of kilometers to avoid on a football pitch especially when you're his age and you're in your 30s that on the final point i think spain should be really really grateful because i've been looking at the spain squad and i'm looking at how some of the the, the big players who are eligible for spain who play in midfield so people like coque or danny parejo have been playing and man they need santa cathola they're, they're some of the the players that you expect to step up and perform well have not been doing so uh, as of late and honestly for me i think this is a slightly concerning spain squad uh looking at both some of the, the people who are more experienced and should be delivering and some of the younger players coming through what do you think what's the state of the spanish national team right now it's a bit worrying because it's the the key part of spain is the midfield even though if it's constantly changing a little bit how you play it might not be as implanted as, as it was before it's still the the key um and there's several players even Busquets being one, it's just not on the, the level that they are expected to be, um, where the progress haven't really gone. I remember looking at the Spain under 21 a few years ago, or quite a few years ago when all of these players were down there, and it, they were so, so much better than anyone. It felt like it wasn't fair when they played under 21 championships because it's like that team was already better than most senior national teams around Europe. Uh, so they were just winning those titles too easily. And you were like, just imagining how good is this Spain team going to be uh, when they're up there? And some somewhere along the line, things have just not worked out the way expected because even though most of these players are top players and some of the best midfielders in, in the world, I'd say, and play for top clubs, it's just something that is missing. And they're not really living up to their potential, I would say, many of them. Well, a theory that I've just come up with off the top of my head, so I've not really thought this through, but, but I wonder also if there might be a problem if it, with exactly what you said. So a lot of these players, it became obvious how good they were at such a young age that they've played an incredible amount of football for the age that they're at already. Busquets, for example, is slowing down significantly earlier than Xavi Hernandez was when he started to slow down. Um, and it goes back to that old thing, you know, Michael Owen always said that he played so much football when he was younger that he, he felt that by the time he was in his mid-twenties, he really had a hard time continuing. And I just wonder if, if Spain might have burnt out someone like Koke, for example, who now should be in the peak of his career and who is who looks like he's struggling for energy and inspiration. That's a really good point, because if you look at that under-21 team, you had Thiago in it, you had mm -hmm. Koke in it, with, um, Busquets was not in it because he was already uh, in the first team. Uh, but they were playing in that under 21. I remember that so clearly because it was two seasons, two under 21 euros in a row where you had most of those players. And you looked at the other teams and, and their, their players were playing youth football, basically. But you looked at the Spain team and their players were already playing in top European clubs. Mm. Some were playing regularly, some were like breaking through, but they were most of them were playing in, in not just top leagues, but in top clubs. Yep. 
Um, and that is like already from that age. Uh, and they were, because they played in, t many of them played in two under 21 years as well, which means that they, in the first one, they were even younger than you, you need to be in, to play in under 21. So from, from that time, they've been playing nonstop on the highest level. Uh, and then they got in, many of them got into the Spanish national team quite young as well. And then playing in, in these top European clubs, which means if you play in a top European club, you play a lot of games because you have the league, you have the cup, you have European European football, so uh, I think that's a really good point, actually, and and something that I haven't thought about either too much. But if you look at at, at players like Xavi, Iniesta, etc., they started much later to play that amount of matches that many of these uh, young Spanish players have been playing for such a long time. Well, we're going to find out either way uh, just how good this current Spain squad is or not because Bombathopod will be there when Spain play Sweden next week. Annoyingly, on a Tuesday, you know, guys, come on, you could have played on some... Well, actually, no. Those dates are not at their disposal. They don't get to choose. But in some way or another, we'll be there. and we'll, we'll feature coverage of it somehow. We have to figure out how. Uh, we'll have a pod next week, as always. But I think now that we're getting close to the hour mark, we can put everyone out of their misery, probably close up for the week. Any closing thoughts, Alexander Jonsson? Uh, not really, no. What's your opinion of cheese? Of cheese? I I get a lot of complaints about this because I'm not a huge cheese fan. I like melted cheese and cheese that people tell me are not supposed to be called cheese, like mozzarella and halloumi and stuff like that. But I don't like normal cheese. All right. Whoever told you that mozzarella and halloumi is not cheese are disturbed, disturbed individuals and you should end contact with them immediately. Okay. Thank okay. you. Okay. Well, until next week then, we will see you later. Hey, though. Adeo. Goodbye. Adeo. Adios. I will.